This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about giving professionals the tools that they need to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And today we're going to talk about something that applies to every single business person who has a presence on the Internet. Let me say that again. Every single person, business owner, entrepreneur, whoever you are, who has a presence on the Internet. And we're going to be talking about Internet law and things that apply to what you're doing online. And I know it's not the sexiest. It's not the funnest. It's not, you know, the most giggle worthy topic, but it is an extremely important topic because it's very easy to accidentally or on purpose do things wrong. And so please join me in welcoming our guest to the program today, Richard Chapo. Welcome, Richard. Oh, thank you for having me on. Chapo or Chapo? Uh, it's Chapo. Chapo. And, uh, Sorry about can, that. <laughs> we can also we can also tell lawyer jokes to liven things up if that's you like. It, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, and and it was funny on one of my programs back in May when we were talking about career planning. I had always wanted to be a lawyer, and and people said, well, yeah, that's because you love arguing with people. Um, but I tell people, I think in a former life, I must have been a lawyer because I I am always thinking, okay, is this correct, you know, and, and what's going to happen if we do it this way, you know, all those various things. So we're going to have a great conversation. But before we um, get going, let me tell people a little bit about you. So Richard Chapo is an internet lawyer in San Diego who has been practicing for 25 years. Richard advises small and large online businesses on how best to comply with laws such as the DCMA, which is Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and FTC regulations applicable to conducting business online. Richard is a massive hockey fan and an avid traveler, having lived in such exotic locations as Siberia. Richard can also be reached through his website, SoCalInternetLawyer.com. So before we go any further, go Avs. <laughs> you know, I am from Colorado. <laughs> um, but, you know, but, but again, Richard, lovely having you here today. So welcome. Well, thank you again. And yes, the Avs are, uh, they're competitive, unlike, uh, my Los Angeles Kings, which got swept. Uh, oh, dear. Was, oh, yes. Dear. Very you painful know, week. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, we're recording this obviously in advance of the Stanley Cup. And, and, um, I was never a hockey fan until the, the Quebec uh, Nordiques, was that right? Were moved, yes. you know, when they, when they became the Colorado Avalanche. And then I just thought it was one of the coolest things in the world. When you go, it's kind of hard to watch on TV. Um, but attending a hockey game is, is a ton of fun. And, and that's one of the things I miss here in Atlanta is, you know, it, we, we don't have hockey here. Um, so, you know, it's, it's always fun to be able to, to watch hockey again. Yeah, and the team that was in Atlanta is now in Winnipeg, and they're right. one of the favorites to win the whole thing. So. I know, you know, and, and, <laughs> you know, and it is such fun. I mean, I have to admit, you know, when we won the Stanley Cup, we went to the parade. I actually got to go to a Stanley Cup uh, game. It was very fun. Um, nice. But, but yeah, so hockey, hockey, hockey. Um, and, and my long-term fans of the program know that I'm typically a college sports fan, but got to love my ass. <laughs> so. uh, absolutely. They definitely come back. They, were, they had a rough I couple know. of years. But, uh, yeah, no, they're very competitive now. They are. So fabulous, fabulous. Well, let's just jump into this because there's so many things that I think especially entrepreneurs and small business owners don't even think about, you know, because it it is it's out of the realm of what we do. You know, we're we started our businesses to sell that widget, to sell that cool product, that cool service, you know, whatever it is. And we don't think that or we don't even know that there are laws applying to the internet and how you're doing business online that even apply to us. Um, you know, we think either people aren't going to notice, people aren't going to care. Those laws apply to somebody else, you know, the big guys, the, you know, the, the Walmarts, the Amazons, you know, the, the whoever's, but in truth, they do apply to, you know, anybody and everybody. So, you know, let's, let's just kind of start at the top when you're starting a business and you're going to be doing business online what are the laws that you need to be paying attention to? 
Oh, well, about 20 years ago, this would be a very short conversation, right. a very short answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, over the last 15 years or so, um, I've referred to it as the Empire Strikes Back phase of the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and dun, you see, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You see governments and uh, in some cases, unions like the European Union issuing new laws um, that are really you know, regulating the Internet in a way that's similar to off world, except mm-hmm. based on Internet issues. So perhaps the single most important thing to start with is. Um, something that you see with offline businesses as well. And that's when you form the business, if you're starting it yourself, that's fine. It's fairly straightforward. However, if you have partners, if you have uh, fellow founders and what have you, um, it's critical that you sit down and uh, come to a written agreement before the business actually starts operating as to uh, the obligations of each partner and, more importantly, what happens when they don't fulfill them. Mm-hmm. Um, because most people start business, they're very enthusiastic and have visions of grandeur. And perhaps a year later, you know, those those visions are proving to be uh, you know, not so attainable. Mm-hmm. Um, well, somebody gets bored, somebody moves on, whatever happens. Right. And they stop uh, providing uh, the services they had promised to provide, and yet they still have an ownership position. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, you know, you want to make sure you have an agreement in place to deal with those situations so you can move those people out. Uh, there are a disturbing number of businesses in the United States um, that have what are called zombie partners. And um, a zombie partner is just somebody, a founder who stopped showing up or stopped, you know, mm-hmm. carrying the load, the load that they're supposed to do. The problem is trying to get them out of the business if you don't have an agreement is an expensive and trying proposition because you have to sue them, then they countersue and everybody countersues each other and it goes on and on and on and you have a judge typically trying to figure out what to do with the business that he or she didn't know anything about, you know, a month earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you can imagine, that often ends poorly. Right. <laughs> right. A lot of times the business goes. I mean, that's just what happens. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but assuming you get that figured out, then at that point, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, some of the basic stuff, business uh, entities uh, and an insurance, you know, the run of the mill things that you'll find on any checklist for starting a business. Once you get to the Internet itself, the number one issue you have to think about is copyright. Uh, and it's simply because online, as we all know, you can you know, right click, save and republish anything practically mm-hmm. anywhere. Uh, and so understanding yeah, we copyright. We don't mean to plagiarize, but oh, it was so much easier than rewriting it. Right, right. No, absolutely. Well, or particularly images. You'll see images mm-hmm. are very easy to take. Um, and you're right. A lot of people, um, you know, do so without really realizing what the issue is. And then, you know, a couple months later, they get a letter from Getty Images demanding $5,000 or whatever it is mm-hmm. um, for the use of that image. So with copyright law, unfortunately, it was developed most you know, primarily um, prior to the Internet, and so it doesn't always translate well. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you know, the mo- most important thing is to think, okay, if I'm going to take this this piece of content and use it somewhere, what right do I have to do that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you can't come up with a good answer, um, you know, then you probably need to think about, hmm, <laughs> should right. I be using mm-hmm. this? You know, and, it, and it's, it's a complex field because admittedly the Internet has developed uh, an aspect of, of – sharing that you don't find offline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the common business model online is to provide vast amounts of information to help other people. Mm-hmm. And that's a business model. Um, you know, businesses in the, the brick and mortar world would never do that. Mm-hmm. They, they would spend years suing each other if, you know, they thought even one of their little secrets got out. Right. Um, it's just a completely different mentality. So it can be difficult to understand, um, you know, whether you have the right to use something or not. But when in doubt, um, you know, make sure that, that, you know, you take steps to do that. And one way to do that, that a lot of people, you know, they get flustered by some of the complexities of copyright. But online, credibility and transparency is really everything. Mm-hmm. And so if you are thinking about, you know, I need images for this, that, or the other, shooting your own images. That's the easiest a, way, right? You own them. Well, not only do you own them, but everybody knows what a stock photo looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't really carry any value. Um, but if you have original images, you know, from some aspect of your business or travels or whatever it is you're doing, you know, you're building a brand there. You're, you're mm-hmm. connecting with your audience. Um, so, you know, when in doubt, particularly given the sophistication of smartphones and what have you these days, you can take high quality photos mm-hmm. uh, and videos, you know, without too much trouble. So, um, you know, we, we can talk about copyright law for literally hours. Right. Um, but, you know, consider instead of going out and trying to hunt down other people's stuff, maybe, you know, take your own images and see how that works out. Mm-hmm. 
You know, and, and I do want to talk, uh, you know, a little bit more about images because I think that is something that people make the, the mistake of thinking, well, I see it on the Internet, therefore I can use it. Um, you know, and, and of course, Google now, you know, if you go to google.images.com and search, they say in there, subject, you know, images may be subject to copyright. And we all go, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, you know, there's certainly, obviously, the, the best choice is take your own pictures, then you own that. There are tons and tons of free places where you can get images. Um, Pixabay is the, the one that I have started using. Always make sure, though, that you read their terms of service because sometimes it says things like, you know, may only be used for personal use and not commercial use. Um, you know, and, and so make sure that you have double checked on, on things like that. And, um, you know, it's, it is something that I require my clients. You know, if, if I'm doing, say, their social media posting or designing a website for them or things like that, and they say, oh, here's this pretty picture that we want to use, I will make them prove that they have the, the right to use that image, i.e., they either took it themselves or they, they show me where they, they bought it or got the agreement to use it. And, it really annoys them on occasion, you know, well, well, I found this on the internet or this was cool or this was, you know, I see, I've seen this used 1500 times. I don't care. Um, you know, and, and so a lot of times what I do is I will buy the images myself. You know, I will tell them, you know, I, okay, I'll just go off and find the image. I will buy it. And then either I transfer that cost onto the client or I keep it and then I get to use it for, you know, for other things. But, you know, I do. I make my clients prove that they have the right, especially if they're posting on their business pages on Facebook, on LinkedIn, you know, all those various public sites or really on their website. You know, that's that's the, the key is if they are putting an image on their website, they have to prove to me that they have the right to, to use that because I'm part of that process. If I misuse that image, then I can get in trouble also. Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. And it's very important to, yeah, uh, you know, consider some of the things that you see online. Uh, some people will say, you know, this is public use. <clears throat> well, public use is not what it sounds like. Public use, you know, refers to, uh, a copyrighted image that's mm-hmm. 70 years or, or, or older, depending on the specific type of content. It's not that it's appearing online. That doesn't make it public use. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, other thing you will often see is people link back to the original content mm-hmm. and, and that's attribution. Attribution is a scholarly concept. It's mm-hmm. not a legal concept. It's not a defense to copyright. Right. Um, so, <laughs> so you do see some things out there that are a little, a little bit of a head scratcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of copyright uh, companies out there that, you know, they make a living sending out these letters and, and you know, going after people uh, for licensing rights. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, fortunately, copyright law is also a little complex to actually um, enforce um, because there's registration provisions and things of this sort that make it a little more tricky. But, you know, the last thing you really want to do online is, if, particularly if you're developing a business, is spend your time, you know, dealing with legal issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right. coming up with the yeah, coming up with a process like you were talking about, you know, where you have some type of a checklist, um, you, you know, that you know, okay, here's where I got it from, here's where our rights are, and here's what the rights, you know, include. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're absolutely specific. Some uh, stock image sites will say you can use this image for website pages and blog posts, mm-hmm. but you can't, you can't use it in an ebook. Right. And that would, that would be a surprise to a lot of people. <laughs> or some of them say quantity. You know, if, if, if your website has under 10,000 hits, I, they, I always love that one. I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of an interesting one. Right. Um, you know, and, and it's funny, you know, people, uh, us, us little lay people joke about we don't read the fine print. Read the fine print, folks. You know, it, 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 it will come back and bite you. Um, you know, one of the things that I always pay attention to in, in what I'm doing is music. You know, the, the music that starts and ends my program. I have purchased the rights to use that and I have purchased the rights to use it commercially. So it's very different than if I just, you know, put something on, you know, say an Animoto or a YouTube video and put it up on my personal stuff. No, because this is a business entity that I am using this music for. I had to make sure that I purchased it for the ability to be able to use that, um, in a, in a commercial aspect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the issues that can come up is, uh, you know, with web design, I mean, obviously you're doing it correctly. Um, but there are a lot of people when they go out and start a website or they start a podcast or something of that sort, you know, budget's obviously a concern. They'll go to the cheapest providers. And one of the issues you can have is, you know, if you're using somebody who's a freelancer, <clears throat> you know, and they build you a website and it has music on it and it has an image and they haven't sourced those correctly. 
you're liable. Not, right. you know, I, I mean, they are liable as well. You can sue them, but they're usually judgment proof, which means they don't really have any assets that are going to cover, um, you know, what you're going to have to pay out. Um, so you're absolutely right. It's, you know, it's a tricky thing and people need to really think about it. Um, you know, and to be honest, sitting down with an internet lawyer in your area, you know, just for an hour and getting kind of a guideline on how to deal with those issues is definitely worth mm-hmm. your money because otherwise you end up spending quite a bit more if right. <laughs> you end up like a well, plate against you. And, you know, we're, we're the little guy. And, you know, say I used a Getty image or a Garth Brooks song or, you know, something like they have really deep pockets and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they can come at you and say, you know, you have broken the law. And of course, all I thought was, but it was my favorite Garth Brooks song. Um, you know, it's it just, just don't go there, folks. You can easily get stuff, you know, that you have the right to use or create your own. I mean, you know, Fiverr is a great example of a way to um, get, you know, whether it's music, whether it's an image, whatever it is, very inexpensive. You know, if you want something completely personalized, you know, that you can do that. The, the intro to my program, the voice is someone that it, that I used. He's a Fiverr person. So, you know, it's it, it takes a little bit extra work. But trust me, people, it's worth it in the long run. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I have had people say is I should trademark my name so that nobody else uses it. And and now I have not gone through that process, you know, and, and I use pretty much my name, Deb Creer, as what I'm doing. Um, my business name, you know, is an LLC. So I have done all of those various things. But what about trademarking your tagline, your name, you know, all of those various things? How important is something like that? Uh, it is important. Trademarking a personal name is a tricky proposition. Um, it can be difficult because, you know, particularly if you have a name that's common. Right. You're John uh, Doe. Uh, you're right. really in trouble. Right. Yeah. There's been previous John Doe's. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're going to have problems doing that. There is a way you, you can do it if you can show that um, there's an established secondary meaning to your name or, you know, there's there's um, some aspect of it. It gets into complex trademark law. Um, so personal names are difficult. And basically, you'd really want to sit down with somebody who specializes in trademarks to, to try to get that through mm-hmm. the PTO. And there's, there's two steps to that. One, can you get it through the PTO, which is the Patent and Trademark Office? Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, even if you do, you know, can you successfully enforce that that mm-hmm. trademark? Um, and those are two different questions. Um, but trademarking your, you know, your logo, your business name, um, your slogan, things of that sort, you can certainly do that. And that's a, um, you know, it's a judgment call. I'll be honest with you. Right. Uh, as an attorney, I do like to see it done, not so much because it builds value for your brand, but because it makes it easier to go after people who are stealing your content. Mm-hmm. Um, trademark law. Is you know it could be a, a powerful mechanism. The damages associated with it and what have you. Um, you know we'll get companies moving, even bigger companies. Um, you know we recently used a trademark to get PayPal to stop processing, um, you know payments from a site that was offshore and very hard to get to. Um, that has stolen you know courses from some of my clients, mm-hmm. and uh, we eventually were able to convince you know PayPal because of the trademark infringement to stop <clears throat> those processing. So that had you know inherent value. As far as adding value to your site. You Yes, if your site grows large, if your business becomes a well-known brand, then certainly, absolutely, it has incredible value. Mm-hmm. And as a practical matter, you know, every lawyer is going to tell you to do it as soon as possible. Um, you know, Apple, uh, you know, has some issues with um, the I designations because mm-hmm. they didn't right. really now think about I this, I that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the question was, could they protect that or could they not? And they made some tactical choices. Um, you know, and so particularly in other countries, <laughs> you mm-hmm. see, you see even more I things than you do here. Um, you know, and then there are other aspects of it. Um, you know, when you, if you're going to submit something, not so much trademark, but maybe copyrighted content or particularly patents, if you're going to submit those, those are going into a public facility and, you know, there are a lot of different views about, you know, what, what's the value of that? Um, you know, Elon Musk with some of his businesses, he doesn't patent. And the reason for that is he doesn't want his competitors to know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're really sophisticated at, at search engine optimization, um, you read Google patents. Mm-hmm. You just do because they're scribing processes in there and you can get a feel for the algorithms that they use to rank sites. 
Um, so as a business owner, it kind of depends, you know, what, what's the value versus what's the trade off of having that information disclosed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for a site, you know, like we're talking about here for your type of business, you're probably fine doing it and I would definitely do it. Um, you know, but there is that calculation there. Mm-hmm. Trademarks, you know, in the brick and mortar world, they actually have more value, right? Uh, you know, because they're, you're talking IBM, you know, McDonald's, the M, um, you know, those are inherently, you know, incredibly valuable mm-hmm. things because people really know them online. You know, let's be honest, there are hundreds of millions of websites. Um, how do you differentiate between mm-hmm. some of these things? It can be difficult, but in general, trademarks, definitely something, you, you know, you want to do, um, if you have a catchy slogan or something of that sort. One, one key thing with that is you can't trademark a domain name unless the name is itself used on the site. So the fact that you have just this domain name, if the domain name isn't incorporated into the site itself, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're going to have problems trademarking that. But if it is incorporated into the site, then you're fine. Right. Um, so, so if you go to the home page and, you know, it says Google, mm-hmm. uh, the Google search page, they can trademark that because mm-hmm. it's, it's on there. If it just said search engine and Google wasn't actually mentioned on the page, then they would not be able to. Right. Um, so that's an important distinction with online businesses. Mm-hmm. Well, now speaking of just having something there, and I may be wrong in this, but I, and in fact, I'm probably guessing I am. So on my websites, I put copyright, you know, whatever the year is. So like, so on, on the business power hour at the very bottom, it says copyright 2018 wise women communications LLC. I was told now not by an expert. So this is probably why I'm wrong that that is all I need to do to, to copyright the content that is on my website. I'm guessing I'm wrong. Um, <clears throat> doesn't hurt. <laughs> I mean, it and way. it's just kind of one of those where people see it and they go, oh, maybe to be safe, I shouldn't steal it. Well, the internet. <laughs> I know, I know. You know people and, steal it anyways. Yeah, yeah. And, and I put that like on my presentations, especially if I, if I leave them with whoever, I put copyright on every slide. Uh, yeah, they can easily take that off. They can steal the content, but it's kind of one of those where maybe it makes them pause. Is is maybe my thought process and well, make them think, would, well, maybe rewrite this just a little bit. Yeah, I would definitely do it. I mean, we have to, you know, going back to our earlier discussion, you have to remember copyright law is antiquated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was written long ago. So the way the copyright law works is <clears throat> you have to, um, when when you create something, if mm-hmm. Stephen King writes a novel. Once he, he concludes that novel and presents it for, you know, uh, commercial use, um, he automatically owns the copyright in that. Mm-hmm. It's automatically, you know, given to him. Now, at that point, uh, under, under copyright law, you need to go ahead and register with the copyright office within 90 days. Okay. And if you do that, then you are awarded statutory damages. You can be awarded statutory damages in a case where there is infringement. And this is important because one of the problems with copyright infringement that a lot of people don't talk about is actually proving damages. Mm. So if I take an image from Getty, let's say I just blatantly copy an image from Getty Images mm-hmm. and I stick it on my blog post on my, you know, trained enthusiast website, mm-hmm. which gets 10, you know, 100 visitors a month. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's, that's one blog post of, you know, 500 blog posts. Well, what's the value of right. that image? You didn't image? sell anything. You didn't benefit from it. Right. Well, it's not even so much benefit, but just, you know, what, what is the value of that? Mm-hmm. It's, it has an extremely low value. Right. And so if, 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 um, you know, Getty, well, actually the photographer hadn't registered that within 90 days, they have to prove actual damages. Mm-hmm. That's, that's going to be very hard. And so if they come at me, with a copyright infringement letter, I'm going to say, well, when was it registered? Show me the record. And if they can't do that, or I see it's outside the 90 days, you know, the leverage comes to me as the mm-hmm. defendant. However, if you do register within the 90 days, then the judge or jury, depending on how it works out, can award damages between $200 per violation up to $150,000. Mm-hmm. And so you get into the bigger money there. So when you, when you create something, you know, as a copyright owner, you want to go ahead and register it. Um, it, you really do because it's gonna, it's gonna protect you even if you intend in a perfect world, even if you intend to share that, mm-hmm. um, document because sometimes people will take it and use it in ways that you don't want it to be used. Um, but that's kind of the antiquated side of copyright law. It doesn't really make sense from the internet perspective because we, we produce so much content, um, that if you start copywriting everything, you know, your, your budget is gonna, uh, right. be yeah, substantial. There, there is a fee to it and, and, um, you know, and, and, and just the, the work of doing it. 
Right. Yeah. And the fees relatively low is 35 to 55 dollars usually mm-hmm. depending on what you're doing. But still, you know, if you think of a blogger, if you're kicking right. out a post every week or something mm-hmm. of that sort, it adds up quickly. Mm-hmm. So some people will make sophisticated, you know, they'll just make strategic decisions. Maybe I don't copyright my blog, but I copyright my courses or mm-hmm. I copyright my slide presentations, you know, whatever it is. Right. Uh, and you have to make that. That decision. Um, but you know, so with copyright law, you know, does adding the copyright notice help? Yes, because it, you can argue that they're, they're on notice. Mm-hmm. So, so when the statutory damages are decided, the $200, uh, per violation would be for what's called an innocent infringer. Mm-hmm. So a person who, you know, just joined the internet three months ago, doesn't know what they're doing and they copied something to their they Facebook did the right page. Click and they went, Oh, this works. Mm-hmm. Right. Completely oblivious, um, you know, and a judge is going to say, okay, you know, it's a slap on yeah, the hand. If you want. Right. And then you have a case where, you know, it's clear that somebody went out and copied, you know, a thousand images and, you know, did keyword searches and research and everything mm-hmm. else and put it up there and they should have known. And if you can show, well, there was a copyright notice on there, mm-hmm. you know, then that goes to the, towards the argument that they should have known they weren't an innocent infringer, that they did this intentionally and they should mm-hmm. be punished. And so the damage awards can be higher. Right. Well, now, one of the things that has caught up to maybe hopefully this century is the DMCA, which is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So what is that? And and I'll be honest, on my websites, I have a link to, I can't even say it, to the DMCA. Um, and But I put it there because other people were putting it there. <laughs> so, right. so what is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act? And why do we care? Uh, well, this is going to be very hard for perhaps yourself and listeners to believe, but there was once a time in Washington when everybody got along and passed laws that were, <laughs> that, that were partisan. Right. Yes, yes, it's a hard, very hard to believe, but, uh, you know, low back to the year 1998, um, uh, the federal government issue enacted quite a few laws that were designed to help the internet grow. Mm-hmm. And basically what they did was they looked at the internet and both parties agreed, hey, you know, this is a, a huge potential economic, economic forum and we need to protect these, these sites. And so they passed laws as Communications Decency Act, mm-hmm. um, which, which gives sites immunity from defamation. Um, you know, when users say nasty things to each other, which I'm sure we've all seen comments mm-hmm. sections of right. sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the DMCA dealt with copyright. And what the DMCA, there are different aspects to it, but the provision most people are interested in is Section 512C. And what it says essentially is that a website cannot be held liable for copyright infringement based on content uploaded by users. So if we think about Facebook, uh, I have a page on Facebook. I go out, I copy an image from Getty Images, completely oblivious to anything about copyright, and I post it to my Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And Getty Images' little robot is out there hunting around, and it finds it. Um, Getty Images will can sue me. However, they cannot sue Facebook. Right, because okay. somebody has a bigger bigger pocket there. Right. And while well, the DMCA is going to give Facebook immunity because mm-hmm. immunity they're that that passive website. Now to maintain that immunity, they have to go through a compliance process, and one of those steps is you know designating a DMCA agent, uh, having a policy. You have to register the agent with the copyright office. And so when a complaint comes in, um, you know, that complaint, Facebook or whoever the site is, you don't have to be as big as Facebook, you know, small, large, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you go through a process where you look at the complaint, you immediately take down the content in question. Um, a lot of people are confused. A lot of people post to YouTube in particular, and they become outraged because YouTube um, or Twitter or somebody will take down their content right away when mm-hmm. a complaint comes in. Right. The, impor- the important thing to understand is under the DMCA, those sites have to do that to maintain their immunity. They don't mm-hmm. get to make a choice. It's not a case where it comes in and you evaluate the complaint, mm-hmm. start going, is this copyright or not? Now, a couple of those companies, because they have such big pockets, they do make a choice. They do evaluate them mm-hmm. because, quite frankly, a copyright lawsuit for a couple hundred grand doesn't mean anything to them. Right. You know, it's just they, they have more money than, you know, they know what to do with, so it's not a problem. For most people listening, you know, getting hit with $200,000 judgment would probably be a bigger issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're, we're done. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So there are, you, you can go online and do search for DMCA compliance process. Um, there was a book being sold on Amazon for a while called the DMCA handbook. Uh, it was written by a lawyer in, uh, Arizona in plain English and had sample forms and everything. It's not a hard process to learn. Uh, it's just something you have to do a couple of times. But once you do that, uh, you know, then you, you've insulated yourself from problems arising from your users posting things mm-hmm. to uh, your site, you essentially have immunity from the most common legal claim in the online environment. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, that's really the value there with the DMCA. DMCA is also... I was told that I needed it because I allow comments on my blog posts and on the the radio website, I allow comments there for each program. And so people said, you know, you should put that there in case somebody posts something they shouldn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. And compliance is is, is incredibly cheap. The only, you know, the cost is the time of learning it. Mm -hmm. uh, And but the actual physical cost is the only fee you have to pay is the registration fee with the copyright office, which is a staggering six dollars. And so you're basically, you know, getting this this massive benefit from a legal perspective for almost no money. Mm-hmm. And yeah, every site that if you allow users to post anything to your site or your internet connected app, you know, go ahead and register. I mean, mm-hmm. it's six bucks. It takes a half hour to learn the compliance process, and you've just eliminated a huge potential threat to your business. Right. So what I just knew, what I just knew from talking to you is I've only gone halfway. I have it posted, but I haven't registered it. So I need to go do that. Um, so right. how do I do that? It, you know, what's, what is that process? Well, you can go to the Copyright Office uh, website and you can uh, look at the DMCA. They have actually a set of videos. Um, I've forgotten the link. I'll provide it to you. Maybe you can post it in the uh, yeah, show we'll notes. Put it in the notes. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the agent can be anybody. Um, however, the agent's phone number and email address uh, are going to be listed publicly as well as their their physical address. Although mm-hmm. for an agent, you can use a PO box. Um, so if you're working from home, um, <laughs> you might want to hire an agent service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I own I actually own a company called DMCAAgentService.com. Very creative name, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's seventy bucks a year, and we'll act as your agent. A lawyer, if you have a work with a lawyer, the lawyer will often do it. Um, if you have an office and you don't care about people showing up at your front door, you know you can use yourself. Um, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but the process is basically you're going to list the information for the business, uh, including the website or the name of the app. Then you're going to list the agent information. And all of this is maintained in an online public database. Uh, and then you're also going to have a DMCA policy on your site that's going to list that information as well as uh, you know, certain aspects of the mm-hmm. business information so people know. Uh, you know you'll see often see on websites a link in the bottom that says DMCA or copyright. Or abuse. Mm-hmm. That's what that is. People go there and they can submit their complaints. Um, it's not something you want to hide. This is helping you, so you want to make sure people can find it. Right. Well, and you know, by having it there, I always tell people, you know, you want people who go to your website to know that you are serious about doing business. And those things include becoming an actual official entity, you know, an LLC, an S Corp, uh, you know, what an ink, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. And having those legal little things at the bottom is another one of those things. And and I just realized that, you know, you and I need to chat offline and I need to pay my $70 to you because I do home office. I don't want my personal address out there. It is out there, you know, and in several places. But, you know, the, the more difficult I can make it for somebody to, to come knocking at my door, the, the better. I had that happen when I first started my business. You know, it never occurred to me. And this was, you know, 20 years ago. So things were a little bit different then. But when I registered my company, I obviously put my address on it. And then at that point, it actually went in newspapers, you know, and and I believe in Denver, it would have been the Denver Business Journal. uh, And it said new businesses registered this month. And all that information went out there, you know, fine and dandy until people started appearing at my door, which was a house. It was very clearly (laughs) a house. You know, and, and wanted to sell me insurance, wanted to sell me a copy machine, you know, all these various things and would get rather testy with me when I would not let them in. Um, you know, and, and so as a home based business, it makes sense to do what you can to hide that information. And I shouldn't say hide, um, to, to not have that information publicly disclosed. So again, if you need a post office box, if you need an agent like Richard, folks, that's definitely something that, that you need to, to very seriously consider. It's also why my address is not on my business cards. Um, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, how do we get in touch with you? I say, you call me or you email me. And if there's a valid reason, I will give you my address. Right. No, I think that's definitely true. You know, particularly it's also true if you have a um, online you know, presence that is in a field that could be considered you know, controversial. So. Mm-hmm. Politics, you know, if you have a forum that's mm-hmm. politics, you know, people are going to get fired up. And, um, you know, I have a client who has a chess site and, <laughs> you know, it, you'd be shocked at how, how, right. how angry people get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's, it's very serious. You know, we were talking hockey before, you know, people take things very seriously and you're just rubbing your head going, really? 
Yes, yes, you know, and with anonymity in the U.S., you know, people will say things, you know, that they would never say to another person in public. So it's, uh, yeah, people can get pretty fired up. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So now one of the other little links at the bottom of my websites is this fun little thing called affiliate disclosure. I'm an Amazon affiliate. I have a business account with Amazon and I frequently am talking to guests who sell books. Well, you know, there's this very cool little way that you can do this and, and, you know, you can say, Hey, you know, go buy, go buy Richard's book. Here's the link to buy it. And then, you know, you set this all up. And then when somebody goes and buys the book, Amazon says, Oh, golly, thank you. And they send you money. Um, you know, now Amazon requires that you have an affiliate disclosure, um, on your website and, and they look, I mean, my, I've, I have talked to people who have said, you know, oh my gosh. And there's a variety of ways to do it. I mean, some people just put it in everywhere, you know, the, you know, I've seen blog posts like cooking blog posts where, you know, the, the top of every blog post, they just say, you know, do notice I, I am an affiliate, you know, some of these, some of this is, is an affiliate, um, you know, and so it might not be Amazon, but it might be, you know, whoever. And, so again, something very simple, but something that is, is something that you need to have on there just so that people are knowing, well, hey, you know, Deb's referring this book. That's great, but she also gets a little bit of money for it too. Right. Yes. The, well, Amazon certainly is one of the more progressive affiliate programs just because they have so much, you know, such a volume of affiliates. Mm-hmm. So they actually require a certain statement to be published. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can read in their, you know, their terms, whatever the statement is. They change it every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the links that you're talking about at the top of blog posts and what have you, those are actually FTC requirements. Oh, okay. Uh, so the Federal Trade Commission is a U.S. Uh, federal agency, and they are charged with uh, monitoring and prosecuting, amongst other things, deceptive marketing practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, both online and off. And so they, they're of the opinion that if you have an affiliate link and you don't disclose that, that that is a deceptive marketing practice. Mm-hmm. The reason being that if you are getting paid, you know, obviously they feel like it influences your uh, review or whatever you may be saying about the product. And I think we've all been to, you know, sites where, you know, coffee, makers or you know, treadmills, whatever it is. And, you know, everyone has a five star rating and it's obvious nobody ever tried any of these things and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what have you. And that's really kind of what they're trying to address there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, most people at the FCC have never actually run a website or a business. And so some of the requirements are rather uh, draconian. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to see what are called clear and conspicuous disclosures. Mm-hmm. And the examples they give are often that, you know, it should be right next to the link. Um, and that the link should have, um, you know, the statement, lights and <laughs> well, they, they go so far as to say the statement can't say affiliate link because they don't believe most people would know what that is. Yeah, and uh, that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some truth to that. Um, but you know, the odd thing is you then end up with a blog post with, you know, a bunch of disclosures that are rather lengthy and it kind of blows it all up. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is if you complied with, I, I'll be completely honest with you, if you complied with every regulation and every law in the U.S. and issued by the states and, you know, European law and Canadian law and everything else, your website would be a mass of pop-ups. You'd right. be able to, you'd be able to see a little bit of the site, you know, up in the right-hand mm-hmm. corner. Um, you know, so there's a lot of these things in Florida. You, you know, Florida law requires you to publish your business address on your homepage. Nobody does that. Um, with the FTC, obviously it's a little more serious because they can pursue enforcement actions, uh, and the uh, damage claims are up to $40,000 per violation. Um, and what you're seeing with the blog post is when people publish that at the top, a lot of it is an attorney that they're talking to and the mm-hmm. attorney saying, well, you know, the FTC may say these are the guidelines, but the FTC can't issue laws. And if we're standing in front of a jury in a court and I say, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we have the statement at the top of the blog, uh, the blog post, you know, would a reasonable person understand that the links within this, this post are, you know, affiliate links? Mm-hmm. Is that a, a reasonable disclosure? And a lot of attorneys, myself included, uh, feel that we could convince a jury that that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why you're seeing those. But the important thing is to, to, you know, understand that disclosures need to be made. They need to be made when you're doing a video. If you have a product that, you're making money off of or that's been given to you for free mm-hmm. for review, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these different things. The big area you're also seeing it right now with is social media, uh, is with influencers. Mm-hmm. Um, the FTC has issued, you know, 90 letters last year to major influencers reminding them that they have to disclose, uh, you know, if they have clothes or whatever it is, it's in the image, uh, you know, that's being given to them for free or which they're being paid to promote. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Instagram is kind of, you know, a huge market for that. Mm-hmm. I think Selena Gomez makes somewhere, you know, upwards of $500,000 per post across all of her social media sites. Um, yeah. I'm in the wrong so, business. <laughs> I, indeed. Indeed. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had similar thoughts in that regard. Well, um, and, and we see that with celebrities and with sports figures, you know, and, and I mean, obviously this goes back, you know, many, many, many years, you know, when, when Ugg the caveman had a certain thing, you know, you went, Oh, Hey, you know, that, that looks cool. But, you know, I, I, I um, have bought shoes, have bought clothes, not because a certain celebrity does it, but I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, it, I was reading something the other day about Brooke Shields. I think I just wanted to know how old she was and, you know, and, and, but it was talking about the jeans, you know, she, when she was a, a young girl. So this was back in, you know, the, the, the early eighties, you know, or late seventies where she was the, 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 I was going to say face of Jordache jeans, but, you know, um, <laughs> but yeah, she was, you know, they were selling jeans. You know, she was, was that image. And, and I mean, there were many, 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 many girls that bought the jeans because Brooke Shields wore them. Um, you know, and, and so the same thing still happens today. I mean, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, the, the tennis shoes, I think would probably be a great example of, you know, where millions of dollars are made by celebrity endorsements. And, you know, but there's also mommy bloggers and, you know, these people that, you know, maybe they only have 5,000 followers. Maybe, you know, they're still influencing people to buy their product. Absolutely. And I think the thing with the disclosures, a lot of people, um, you know, frown upon them. Um, but it's a chance to actually, you know, show transparency and improve your credibility. You know, I'll often have my clients say things like, you know, unlike other sites, we want to make sure you understand, you know, that, you know, we make money through this link or something of that sort. You know, and there are ways you can go about that. If you do a search, if listeners do a search online for um, FTC affiliate disclosures, mm-hmm. FAQ, um, the FTC has actually put together a very good oh. uh, FAQ page where they show examples, mm-hmm. uh, things of that sort. And it can be helpful uh, in gaining an understanding of what you should and shouldn't do. Um, but they do. It is a hot button topic with them. Um, we haven't seen a ton of prosecutions, but um, it would be something that you probably want to make sure that you have on your site, mm-hmm. even if you're doing it imperfectly, because so many of your competitors will not be doing it at all. Right. And, you know, it, it, as much as we, we laugh and we joke about the federal government or, you know, state entities, they don't want to prosecute everybody they possibly could because they couldn't. You know, and, and so a lot of it is, you know, the, the good faith effort, you know, the, the, oh, ooh, you know, I didn't word it quite right. I'll, I'll fix that. And they're like, okay, fine. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, but again, folks, it's, it's something that doesn't take a lot of time, but is very important to do. No, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is true. Agencies, you know, they only have so much manpower and, and so, so much of a budget. Um, you know, and the FTC is taking a beating. Um, you know, reputation wise, particularly from lawyers like myself who mm-hmm. see some of the things they do that are kind of you know, laughable. I mean, Google was essentially, you know, accused of hacking Safari, the Apple browser and, and mm-hmm. tracking people. If you and I had done that, we'd go to jail. Right. Um, you know, Google was fined like $22 million or something of that sort mm-hmm. by the FTC. And, you know, Google makes $22 million and, you know, pretty much just the time of that last statement right. I made. <laughs> yeah, they're like, yeah, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> just make yeah. this go away. Right. Do you want that in twenties or hundreds? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, you know, the agency gets some grief, but this is an area that they have shown some, uh, some teeth on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So definitely something to make sure you understand. Right. Well, another one of the hot button issues that is, has really come up a lot is sales tax. You know, if you're selling something online, you know, whether it's through your website or, you know, through something like Amazon, that's become the big thing. And obviously it's, it's a, a big thing for states because they can be losing millions and millions of dollars when someone is selling something online and not paying sales tax. So, you know, I realize that is something that, that, you know, is, is probably hours worth of discussion, but, you know, and, and so if you have a product that you're selling, what are the guidelines? Yeah, uh, it's actually a subject that we can cover in three seconds. Oh, good. Um, we should not discuss it because the sales tax legality of sales tax online um, is in front of the Supreme Court right now. Oh, okay. Okay. They just uh, just argued the case, uh, I think, yesterday. <laughs> ah, cool. So, so, Supreme- so as we're recording this, these decisions are being made. Yes. So the Supreme Court later this year will issue an opinion that will – completely change, you know, set the standard for sales tax. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, we've, we've been working off of a standard that was set in a 1992 case 
that involved uh, catalogs. You remember way back when right. everybody sent out when we catalogs. Had those old Sears catalogs. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it was issues about Nexus and this, that, and the other that don't really translate well to online. And so you've had some states where the courts have said yes, you can you can enforce and collect tax, and other states said no. And then the states tried to get together and, and pass a joint law that they would all agree to comply with. Uh, and of course that you know never happened. I think they got mm-hmm. up to about 25 states that could get their act together. Um, so eventually it has managed to work its way up to the Supreme Court. And um, I, I don't know the name of the case, but I do know it was argued literally yesterday. I think so. Typically, in a couple months they'll issue a decision, and it'll it'll undoubtedly change everything. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you know you'll have to have to collect it or not, you know I don't know. Um, but we'll, we'll you know we'll definitely have a new paradigm. And right. so until then. You know, maybe do a Google alert if you're listening to this for, you know, internet sales tax, um, and just wait because I can guarantee you when that decision's rendered, there's going to be a lot of interested parties. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, if you're selling your product through Amazon, you know, and and I know that we've got some listeners on the the program that do that. The nice thing is they'll let you know. <laughs> you know, oh, yes. they, they want to stay in compliance, and and so you know that's that's kind of cool. It's it's the poor little mom and pops that need to make sure that that we're doing it correctly. Um, you know, and and again, folks, I always laugh. You know, there there are many things that that you can kind of mess around with, but don't mess with the IRS. I think that's a, a radio commercial. Um, you know, because <laughs> they they you know yeah, hello as as you know Capone knew they they will eventually get you. So um, you know, just just follow those laws. Yes, if you get in the crosshairs of the IRS, it can be a, a miserable few years. That's oh, for yeah. sure. Oh yeah, you know, and 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 they just, they, you know, it's it's like we've watched on all the TV shows. They like it. They like going after the you know the people. Um, so yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. So you know, as we mentioned, as we're recording this, the decision has not been made, but by the time this airs, it will have. So you know, make sure that you're following the the, the rules the way you're supposed to. Yep, exactly. So now one of the other hot buttons, and it's funny because this actually is something that happened, you know, several years ago, but for whatever reason, it's popping up again, um, especially on my Facebook, you know, things like that. And that's, um, the, what is known as GDPR, which is Europe's privacy law, and it pertains to email marketing. And again, I don't know why it's, it's all of a sudden hot button again, but, you know, it, which actually made me think, well, it must be new, but that's the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. So you can tell I Googled all these things before. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, many of us do send out emails. We send out, you know, e-newsletters, e-whatever it is. Um, so we also need to, to know about spam and anti-spam regulations. Well, what is GDPR and, and does it even apply to, you know, most of us here in the United States? Uh, the General Data Protection Regulation is a, uh, as you described, it's a new privacy, it's actually a new privacy and data protection, mm-hmm. um, regulation that goes into effect on May 25th, in 2018 in Europe. Um, and. Ah, so that's why it's hitting all my feeds again. Oh. Yes, yes. So what happened was, um, the EU passed an original thing called a directive in 1995 that dealt with these issues. Mm-hmm. A directive is not binding on the member states. So there are 28 member states, uh, in the EU. It's not binding on them, but it's kind of like uh, a recommendation that, that states follow this. And so what happened is we ended up with each country doing their own thing and it's a complete mess and, you know, compliance is really difficult. Um, and certain aspects of the, the, reg- the directive were, were just laughably you know, a week. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about what the internet was like in 1995, you know, there was no Facebook, there was none of, uh, you know, behavioral tracking or right. any of this kind of stuff. So in 2016, they finally got around to uh, issuing the new regulation and then they postponed enforcement until May 28th, which is, mm-hmm. or May 25th, which is coming up. Mm-hmm. The GDPR is 99 articles coming in at about 200 pages, accompanied with 173 recitals, which come in at about another 250 pages. Oh, dear. Um, so, <laughs> you, re- you really want to talk to an attorney. You want to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you want to, you know, sit down with somebody, show them what you're doing, and make sure, you know, that compliance, if you need to comply, and if you do need to comply, the steps you need to take. It's mm-hmm. very hard to, uh, talk about it without, you know, all kinds of disclaimers. Right. So, but here's a very, very general discussion of it. Again, go talk to an attorney. Don't rely just on what I'm going to say because specifically what you're doing may affect it. Mm-hmm. Um, the email, the issue with email is, um, because we had that 1995 directive, it really, one of the weaknesses was it really only applied to businesses that had a physical presence in the EU. Mm-hmm. So European countries or let's say like Facebook, which has mm-hmm. servers in Ireland and things mm-hmm. of that sort. Okay. 
Okay, so most companies in the U.S., smaller businesses, built up their email list uh, following Can Spam Act, which is a very liberal uh, email law. It's very simple to comply with and what have you. And so you people built up these huge lists. Um, however, in building up those lists, the technique that was used doesn't comply with most of the email laws that you see in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, in the UK, there's a, an email regulation called the PECR, and it requires that there be granular consent and all these different things. Granular consent means that when somebody came to your site, there would have to be a pop-up. They would have to agree by checking a box to certain types of data uh, collection and usage. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that doesn't even come into effect in the CAN-SPAM Act. Mm-hmm. So as we, come, as we come to May 25th, people are looking at their email list and they're saying, okay, well, what does the GDPR require? The GDPR requires that you have a legal basis for collecting and processing data. And there's six different legal bases. Uh, in this case, for the newsletter sign-up list kind of business model that we use, the only um, real legal basis for doing that is through what's called consent. And um, you know, so a lot of people are thinking, okay, well, you know, do I have consent? Does mm-hmm. my, do I match the GDPR? Do I match these European email laws? And the answer is no, uh, because the can spam is so lenient and the European laws are so strict. When you've been building up your list for the last 10 years, you've actually been in violation of most of the European laws and we're just never, never prosecuted mm-hmm. because, you know, how are they going to do it and everything else? The problem with the GDPR is that, um, Europe is trying to radically change privacy law and they're trying to attack U.S. business models. Mm. Um, and the, one of the reasons the EU was created was to compete, uh, to give European countries the ability to band together and compete, mm-hmm. um, with other economic powers, the U.S., China, and what have you. And so, you know, they can, they tell you it's, you know, privacy is a human right under uh, the European Union um, formation documents, which is true. And they tell you, we believe in privacy, we believe in privacy. But if you have ever been to London and you go for a stroll through London, it is the most photographed, videotaped, right. mm-hmm. you know, city in the world. You can't sneeze uh, without them knowing about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they have algorithms running all the video and looking for different things. And so, so there's a lot of, you know, eye rolling when they, they say these statements. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as it goes with the email law, do you have consent? Do you have the right type of consent? And most people don't. And so the reason you're seeing these emails come out is they're called repermission emails and they're oh, trying okay. to get you, they're trying to get you to go to a form that is compliant, that does have all the things that are supposed to be there. You sign up again and then now they can say to the EU, you know, we had repermission. Mm-hmm. These people all signed up. The problem is, um, <laughs> uh, most people that are doing that don't realize they're still violating European law. So mm-hmm. either there's making a decision to do that or not. Honda, Honda did that. Honda sent out this email mm-hmm. and uh, they sent it out to about 290,000 recipients saying, mm-hmm. Hey, the GDPR is coming along. Yeah, we want to make sure that, you know, you're comfortable with this and you're compliant with this, blah, 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 blah. And here's the form and the ICO, uh, which is the enforcement agency in the United Kingdom, um, went after Honda and ended up fining them. They were one of the first cases. So the fine was only, only maybe $30,000 of the equivalent, not too huge, but, um, uh, so, you know, most people are trying to decide, well, what do I do? How do I address this? Some companies have just deleted um, their email list. Um, there are certain uh, content management systems. There's one called ConvertKit, um, which have been very proactive in this area. And if you use them, they can actually identify the IP address hmm. uh, or other markers for the email address. So you mm-hmm. can see which ones are in Europe and which ones are, are not because this only applies to people who are located in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can, you know, exclude that list, maybe delete that list. It just kind of depends on your risk level, what you want to do. You really, really want to sit down with an mm-hmm. attorney and go through this. Right. And, and especially if you're sending out a lot of, of those emails, um, you know, and, 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 and you also, and, you know, we only have about five minutes left. And so we're not even going to be able to touch on can spam, um, you know, and, and a right to privacy, things like that. But, you know, it, it definitely is something, folks, that, that you have to look at. You have to, to be compliant with. One of the things that I hate the most, and, and this happens maybe once a week, is when someone that I have, you know, uh, accepted a LinkedIn connection to. So, you know, they've sent me a request to connect on LinkedIn. I've said, sure, you know, you look interesting. I, I click connect. And then wham, I am on their email list. 
right. know, and, and you can download, you can download your entire um, list of connections from LinkedIn. And, and I see that happen all the time. And LinkedIn tells you to do that as a way to back things up in case LinkedIn ever goes, you know, you've, you've got all that information, but you know, don't just randomly add people to your email list, folks, because, you know, just because I wanted to connect with you on LinkedIn doesn't mean I want to get your, your, you know, daily emails from you. Um, you know, and I'm going to report you. I'm not just going to unsubscribe. I'm going to report it. Um, right. you know, and, and now, you know, granted, you know, depending on the service, all those various things, you know, I'm, I am one that if I, if it gives me the option to say, I did not sign up for this, I click that button. Um, you know, does it do any good? Probably not. Makes me feel better. Um, well, but, well, you, know, but- you, you don't want to waste your time sending your information to people who don't want it. So why do that? Right. And actually, you know, just an insider tip. Um, if you want to get in trouble with one of these agencies, uh, the way they typically identify targets and uh, the first way they identify them is they look for complaints. Mm-hmm. Uh, not one or two complaints, but right. if they start getting, you know, consistent mm-hmm. complaints, then they're going to take a look at you. Um, so if you take those actions, you know, you're in trouble. Uh, just two quick other things on the GDPR. Um, so listeners may be thinking, well, it's Europe. What the heck do I care about Europe? Right. Um, it, it has the GDPR has a territorial scope clause, which is very broad. And what it basically says is that if you, um, offer goods or services, even if for free, uh, to people located in the EU, then you must comply with the regulation. And you may be thinking, okay, well, I don't really do that. Well, if you have an email list and you drip market on that email list and you have, you know, more than five or ten people on that list who are in, located in the EU, are you not offering them services and goods? Right. Even though there's no value to it. Maybe you're linking to your blog post or an ebook or whatever. Yeah. You know, you, you have offered something that, that is, is valuable. You know, there right. might not be a price to it, but there is a value to it. Right. Now, again, there's an illegal analysis and there's, you know, uh, again, you need to talk to an attorney. It's not that that simple as I've described it, but it is a key thing. The second thing I would uh, you know, recommend or at least people should be giving thought to on the email list. The Internet is splintering. It's called the splinter net. You can go do searches on it and read about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but business from a business perspective, you will no longer in the very near future be able to do business across the world. Um, the, the groups are just, you know, these governments and, uh, the EU are putting up, um, borders, if you will, from a legal perspective. And particularly mm-hmm. with the EU, they're doing it on privacy. So if you have an email list and let's say you send out your re-permission and you get a 50% return rate on your re-permission list. Okay. Well, you may think, okay, I'm home free on the GDPR. And the answer is no, you're not. The GDPR has a decay mechanism in the um, information requirements. And what that means is that even though you have consent and the view of the enforcement agencies, consent doesn't last forever. Oh. It, it only lasts for a reasonable amount of time or amount of time you can justify. And this is, I hate the GDPR because they don't give you any answer. They say, they say things like appropriate intervals. Well, right. What the heck does that okay, mean? Okay, is that a week or is that 10 years? Right. All right. And so this is why it's, you know, going to be litigation right and left. Um, but the thing to understand with your email list is they are going after email list and the GDPR, as much as we may not like it in the U.S., is probably going to be a pretty common approach in the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Um, you know, politics aside, wasn't the greatest idea for the NSA to hack, you know, the account email accounts of leaders across the world right. tend to have mm-hmm. a negative view of us mm-hmm. because of this. Um, so this really huh. shouldn't be a surprise. Or, or for Facebook to be allowing data access in ways that people weren't expecting. Um, right. You know, I always laugh. I, I tell people, I'm sorry, you're using a free public website. What is your right. expectation of privacy? <laughs> you know, yes. just just expect it's not there. So don't post stuff you don't want everybody to see. Right. And in the EU and not other countries, but particularly the EU, um, privacy is taken very, very seriously, as seriously mm-hmm. as freedom of speech is here in the U.S. Right. In the in the U.S., privacy is nothing less than another joke, mm-hmm. um, unless it deals with health records or your kids or your financial records. Mm-hmm. You know, it's extremely weak here. So right. we're used to operating under very lax rules. The EU is radically changing that. So if you, you know, you really need to talk to a lawyer, I'm only in California. So, you know, most of you are in other states, uh, you know, we're going to have to talk to other people. So this isn't self-serving. You really need to go talk to somebody about this because the fines are as much as 4% of worldwide gross revenue or up to $25 million. Mm -hmm. Obviously, those numbers are intended more for the Facebooks of the world, but there's going to be bite to this. Uh, you know, and then the question is, you know, what happens if you, if they enforce against you? How are they going to come against you if you're in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. 
It's a difficult question. There are um, treaties, there are uh, acts such as the Uniform Foreign Monetary Judgment Act that they might try to go through to prosecute. I don't know if they'll be able to. Again, that's another area that's going to be litigated for years. At a minimum, you would be blocked in Europe. Um, and that can have obviously some you know, ramifications right. for your credibility and things of that sort. Um, so don't blow this off. Know that when you hear this GDPR stuff, it actually applies you know, to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, all that's going to be legally challenged, but you know, unless you have a bunch of money sitting around to contest that, uh, you know, you need to know that. So the final thing is, go buy liability insurance and make sure it covers GDPR enforcement mm-hmm. actions. Wonderful, um, wonderful. So you have some, yeah. So you have some resources there to try to address those issues. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, holy cow, we're at the top of the hour, and you know, there's uh, obviously tons more that we could be talking about, um, and things are always changing. So you know, we'd love to have you on again when there are things like that. You mentioned you're in California, but you've got great resources. You've got a great blog here. So um, you know, I, I want to encourage people to to check that out. So how do they find you and connect with you online? Sure, you can always find me through my website, which is SoCal, like Southern California, mm-hmm. SoCalInternetLawyer.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn quite a bit, uh, so send me a request on LinkedIn. I pretty much approve everybody, and uh, those are kind of the two areas that I focus on. I'd love to tell you I'm on all the other social media channels, but time being what it is for attorneys, um, you know, I rarely if ever post on those others. Um, so get me through either of those two, and I'll be happy to uh, to chat with you. Perfect. And again, it's SoCalInternetLawyer.com. Well, I am Deb Creer. I've been having a wonderful time and, and an interesting time. I mean, I did discover ether, some things that I need to be doing, talking with Richard Chapo. I am Deb Creer, and until next time, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. You've been listening to C-Suite Radio. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.